From KIOS in Omaha and Exorbin Creative, you are listening to Riverside Chats. I am Tom Noblock, and today I have a repeat guest, Matthew Worsner, who's a local attorney who gives me a history lesson on election shenanigans. Some very shady stuff happening with the Electoral College in 1876. Hayes and Tilden go to bed on election night believing that Tilden had won. He led and won the popular vote by nearly 300,000 votes. Hayes actually had to be told by uh, the Republican Party, stop telling people that you lost uh, because the election wasn't over yet. Stolen elections, overturning the will of the people, corruption. Can it happen in America? Worsner makes the case that it already has. Come back to 1876 with us right here on Riverside Chats. And welcome to Riverside Chats. I am Tom Noblock, and today we have a history lesson for you. A history lesson that relates to what we've been talking about on the show lately. One of our most popular episodes from 2020 was attorney Matthew Worsner, who, despite not having much of a public presence, got one of the most downloaded shows that we put out there. So I don't do a ton of repeat guests unless there's a reason to have someone come back on. But just because our, our audience seems to have a special spot for Matthew Worsner in their hearts, I thought maybe let's have him come back on and talk about something other than just himself. And so Worsner at some point in his life was considering becoming a historian. And there is a part of him that loves to explain history. And there's a part of me that loves to have him explain history to me. So I invited him on the show today to tell a story from our past. A story of stolen elections of fraud at the Electoral College, of mass corruption in 1876. This is the presidential election between Rutherford B. Hayes and Samuel Tilden. And I don't want to give you too much of uh, a preview because I'd rather let Worsner himself take it over. So without further ado, here is Matthew Worsner talking about election fraud in 1876. Okay, he's back, everybody. I just want to, I want to start with a couple things, one of which is... Your first episode is one of our most downloaded episodes at this point. That's great. Um, I'm excited to be the, the first ever repeat guest in show history. Well, I've had Kari Eastman on a couple times. There's, there's been a couple, but you... Uh, not sure why I'm here, I guess. Not to be too mean, but you're probably the lowest profile, but most return <laughs> guest. And uh, people like you. So I think they like you more than they like me talking about things. I, I'm, I'm really glad to hear that. I'm, I'm a little surprised. I got to be <laughs> honest, but that's exciting. You're going to get hear. a spinoff someday like Joey. That's great. If, if it's more successful like Frasier, that'd be great, but... Oh, yeah. <laughs> Frasier, Frasier was definitely more successful than Joe. How long did Joey run? Two seasons? I would be surprised if it made it to a second season. So, um, I also... Uh, the show has reached this new level where I get a lot of emails from people who listen, and I've gotten a couple recently that say, when I advertise that the show needs to be on a topic... Uh, somebody emailed me and said, my advice for you, stick to the topic. Oh, okay. Uh, so I guess you're not allowed to talk about yourself or else I'll get a mean email. Really? Uh, so let's, let's stick to the business only. Okay. Um, <laughs> which today our topic is what? The election of 1876. Taking us all the way back 140 years, 150 years, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, it's an interesting topic because I think it relates to the most recent election. It's one that I didn't know anything about before very recently. And I I was surprised to learn everything I did learn about it. And I'm I'm guessing the viewers will be equally as surprised. Now how did you stumble upon this election? I have absolutely no idea. Um, I think <laughs> what had happened it was the Google search algorithm has come to realize that I'm a, a massive dork and suggested uh, this as a topic for further reading because it, it knew it was something I would get sucked into. But like, what was it like a book that came up or? No, I wasn't. It was an article I saw uh, about the current election that had a, a reference to it. Ah, okay. And then I got trapped in one of those Wikipedia rabbit holes. Yeah. So, okay. 1876 set the picture for what was the state of the country at that point. Okay. So, um, if if you recall, the Civil War had ended um, 76 minus 65, had ended 11 years prior. I had to do a little math there. Um, most people remember from their high school history class that the Civil War was essentially a war about 
states' rights, i.e. slavery. Um, the, and that's disputed kind of the, the way that we frame that, right? I guess. Yes, I have heard that. I, I don't really care about the dispute. <laughs> I, Fair I, enough. Okay. I know states' rights is, is what I have heard that it's about. Um, after the Civil War ended, though, that didn't necessarily mean that everybody got along. And the president uh, presidents after Abraham Lincoln weren't necessarily the most upstanding and didn't necessarily have the least corrupt administrations possible. And so the country was in a, a bit of turmoil from the extent that they didn't trust their politicians, for one. And for two, uh, Reconstruction was going on. And Reconstruction was, in essence, troops in the North making sure that uh, the Civil War didn't restart in the South. Um, there were federal troops located throughout the South who were making sure that uh, black citizens who had newly become citizens were being afforded the new constitutional protections they had under the 14th and 15th amendments. Now, so the term reconstruction also implies that they're building the South back up, right? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, the the level of destruction from the Civil War is kind of unmatched by anything else because literally an army marched through Georgia with the sole purpose of destroying everything. Not something that uh, America had really experienced since the War of 1812. So this is kind of like a dry run for Iraq and Afghanistan, right? In essence, what what people in the Middle East and people in Europe have uh, felt the brunt end of a number of times in which, with the exception of a few key points many, many, many years ago, Americans have been otherwise free from. Uh, but with the South, what had happened was not only was their livelihood destroyed by getting rid of slavery, but their buildings and economies were actually physically destroyed, so they had to both reconstruct the infrastructure and reconstruct their lives, which is a, a difficult proposition. I understand that aspect. But an economy that was entirely built on slavery, essentially, sort of deserved to be deconstructed, I suppose. Um, so we flash forward to 1876, and the election is between Rutherford B. Hayes and Samuel Tilden. The only thing I knew about that election going into looking this up was that Rutherford B. Hayes won, because I'd never heard of Samuel Tilden before. I, I think I remember learning that Hayes was president at the end of Reconstruction, but I had no context for that, I feel like, when I was taught it. I, I vaguely remember the Compromise of 1877 ended Reconstruction, that is the extent of my knowledge uh, on this topic. I had no idea that it was sort of a constitutional issue that would affect us today. It was just one of those blurbs from high school history class. Yeah. Well, okay, so Reconstruction, though, I mean, it was it was contentious. And the, the presidency, so I, I mean, I, I guess I don't have a good sense of the people who were becoming president. Was it sort of at that point like you had your southern guy running against your northern guy in all the elections? You know, I don't. I don't think so. Um, what I believe you you had really were career politicians and lawyers. Those were the only people hmm. that, that really ran for elections back then. Um, the, the trick is, though, the way that it was framed to me in law school when we discussed the 13th, 14th, and 15th amendments, the ones that ended slavery and guaranteed um, life, liberty, and property with due process for all citizens, the way that those amendments were framed to us was they were voted on and ratified by the southern states with northern troops outside making sure the vote was decided the correct way. So the the southerners, I'm, I'm guessing if I put myself in their shoes, didn't necessarily feel like the democratic system was working in their favor. They didn't really have the, the voice and the vote that they actually wanted. And so the, the Reconstruction era... Um, I, I think may have been marred by some of the the feelings that African Americans who had been pulled here as slaves were feeling that they were disenfranchised, um, they didn't have a voice. Uh, not to mention the slavery aspect, I suppose. How how different is what happened from Lincoln's original plan? Did he have any specific vision for what Reconstruction would look like? Um, I I don't know. Uh, I'm not sure that he would have had enough time to, to think ahead. 
I guess, because he, he died so close to the end of the war that ending the war was first and, and foremost. You know, Abraham Lincoln preached throughout the Civil War that the whole, the whole goal of the war was unity between the North and the South. And my perception of him is he's the kind of person that if it would have ended the war and brought everybody together, regardless of what it was, he would have done it. Sort of an ends justify the means approach. Having never met the man, I, I can't guarantee that that's really what happened. Well, but I mean, so surely he had some idea that uh, the war was step one in a very long process of actually assimilating sure. the two Americas. For sure. That still hasn't really happened. Uh, yeah. In, in fact, we're probably more divided now than, than we were yeah. then, especially into, I think, larger a larger number of groups than there were back then. It's easy for us being myopic 21st centurions to think that it was just the North versus the South. And I'm, I'm sure there were a lot more groups involved, but it, it's hard for me to imagine a world that's more divided than the one we have today. Although the Civil War is, I mean, I don't want to say it's nice to think that there was a Civil War, but it's like, well, you know, we're not quite there, you know, yeah. so if, if there's one People thing. People can argue on Twitter all they want, but so long as nobody's shooting anybody else, I suppose it's really not that bad in relative comparison. Yeah, not at least not like an official battle, like a, a yeah. the, the official armies shooting exactly. at each other. But, okay, so 1876, um, I guess, so... What was going on in 1876 then? I mean, was there consensus that Reconstruction had served its purpose, or was this purely a diplomatic, like, we will get out of here kind of agreement? Um, Well, in 1876, there was no agreement to end Reconstruction yet. And so to the North, it hadn't served its purpose yet because they still had troops in the South. In the South's mind, obviously it's, it's served its purpose because the war is over and Uh, Black citizens now have the right to vote, and soldiers need to get out of there as quickly as possible so that the Southerners can get on with their lives. Um, For the newly franchised black citizens, though, Reconstruction definitely hadn't served its purpose, and uh, that's pretty telling from the fact that Jim Crow laws and um, voter suppression and all different sorts of things that black citizens had to deal with really extended in large part until the civil rights movement over a hundred years later. Well, yeah, I mean, that's the line that you hear a lot, you know, like you hear uh, Cornel West or whoever else will say, we didn't have democracy in America until 1965 or whatever. You know, I can, I can relate to that based on doing a little bit of research into this, but I don't necessarily know that that's entirely accurate. It, I agree democracy from the standpoint that every person has a vote definitely didn't exist back then. But if you narrow the focus a little bit, uh, we were somewhat of a democratic society. It's just not everybody had the right to vote. <laughs> somewhat of a democracy, yeah. maybe. I don't know. Um, the, the theory was there, but the the practice was not there yet. Well, so maybe this is kind of off topic, but in terms of the philosophy of You're that— You're supposed to stay on topic. I am, am, uh, I'm not asking about your personal life. I so. will apologize to the viewers right now. <laughs> yeah. Tell this one person who emailed me that you're sorry. <laughs> um, but no, uh, the philosophy of democracy for some isn't really that much of a democratic theory being put into practice, right? I mean, if you go all the way back to 1776, the idea of who's really person enough to vote, not really being that expansive of a concept, is, I mean, that's a very limited worldview. It sort of sets yourself... Sets, Sets you up for like an oligarchy immediately, right? I think the founding fathers probably at their their most storied and their most revered probably did mean every citizen has the right to vote. That's not what actually happened, but I think that is what democracy is, and that's what they meant. It's just not what they said or did. So how what is that? How does that work? How do you square that? I don't know that you can. It's kind of like ringing in an answer on Jeopardy and getting it wrong and saying, oh, that's not what I meant. But, you know, you can't unring the bell. It's the system that they they gave us at the time was imperfect and it was almost deliberately exclusive. And, you know, the, the framers did a good job keeping certain people out and the government did a good job keeping people out for a long time. 
If you're just joining us, Matthew Worsner is explaining the stolen election, talking about election fraud in American history in 1876 and the election between Rutherford B. Hayes and Samuel Tilden. Well, I guess a thing that gets romanticized is this idea that the founding fathers were unified and that they got along and that it was like a group project where everybody came to the same conclusions and, you know, that they were all able to persuade each other. When it, it sounds like it was just a, a bunch of arguments and some broad ideas kind of won out, but even those weren't really all that, you know, they weren't all, they weren't necessarily that defined. It wasn't like everybody liked everything that ended up in there. I, you know, as I, I think I alluded to last time, they didn't have a crystal ball. All I think they really wanted was to not be under uh, British rule anymore. And whatever on earth got them to that standpoint is what they were going to do. Yeah. Well, like the, the Federalist Papers seem to be one of those things until you read it, everyone uses it as sort of their example. Like, well, and you know, Federalist 8, Madison says this or that, you know, but it's like there's actually a lot of conflict within those. So it's almost like everyone just sort of picks their thing and then can find a Federalist paper to go along with whatever argument they're making. You can cherry pick anything from yeah. anywhere. I'm sure I could I could look in the Bible and find something that relates to the Constitution. Well, I, th- I know that's kind of my point, which is that it becomes romanticized and mythologized to the extent that it's like this sacred word rather than... I, I like that description, mythologized. Oh, yeah? Yeah, you can I, have that. I, th- I think that very accurately uh, portrays the viewpoint that a number of people in the country currently have. I, I make no bones about the fact that I am not one of them. You're not, you don't picture George Washington in like a toga with a, a six-pack and huge packs. <laughs> Him crossing the, the Delaware River. I, I love that picture or painting, I guess, because it, it sort of personifies that, that mythological idea of the Founding Fathers. I don't imagine Benjamin Franklin like with a halo descending from the heavens to hand us the Constitution. Though. He was pretty close to wielding lightning bolts, though, <laughs> I mean, if we had to pick. If he, if he could throw lightning bolts <laughs> at people quite like Zeus, I suppose I would revere him a little bit more. But... I think we're two decades from that being part of the story. <laughs> All right, so anyway, it's interesting, I think, that we go from 1776 as, you know, the... the the setting of a lot of these mythologies we're talking about to 1876 as, I mean, would you say that was the, uh, was it (laughs) the most troubling election that had happened up to that point? Gosh, I don't know. That's not a question I can answer. (laughs) But it's, there's a lot to unpack there and it doesn't bode that well for, like, if you were alive in 1876, you're probably thinking like, yeah, I think the American spirit, uh, the whole idea, the experiment might've just ended. It, it it's definitely an unprecedented territory, I think, back then, and it's very similar to what we have today. That there's a lot of things going on that have never happened before, and a hundred years ago, we'd only had a hundred years of government, so we didn't have a lot of precedent to look back on to say this is what we've done in the past because we literally haven't existed for that long, and that's actually one of the things that comes up as they are trying to decide what to do with the election is there's no precedent for how to solve a dispute like this. Hold on, hold on. So who's they and what's the dispute again? Okay, okay. Let let me tell the story a little bit more, I suppose. So Hayes and Tilden go to bed on election night believing that Tilden had won. He led and won the popular vote by nearly 300,000 votes. Uh, A pretty substantially uh, huge margin that both of them, even back then, uh, without sophisticated computers and whatnot, assumed that Hayes had won. Hayes actually had to be told by uh, the Republican Party, stop telling people that you lost uh, because the election wasn't over yet. And back then, the inauguration was in March, so there was a lot more time for the Republicans to game, essentially, a way for Hayes to become president. Well, okay, so was it in March because it took longer for votes to reach places? Everything and was then slower back for then. For them to, like, for the college to meet and do the final yeah, you know, everything ratification was, everything? Everything was slow back then. Think about how slow dial-up was back then. <laughs> well, okay, I want, I want a little bit more context. So what, was Hayes running, he wasn't an incumbent, was he? No. Okay, so they're both running on different platforms was Hayes running on a specific I mean were they both running on different types of approaches to reconstruction um I don't I don't necessarily know um Tilden I know Tilden was a he was a bachelor lawyer which is a very <laughs> fun thing for me to say 
but he was somebody that was fighting against corruption. And that was sort of a key component of this election because the prior administrations had had problems with corruption in the government. And both of them were trying to, <laughs> to for lack of a better phrase, to drain the swamp. Oh, boy. <laughs> Okay, um, so similar-ish campaigns, you'd say? Um, I, I think so. Okay. I mean, you didn't have this... I mean, I guess you had a lot of polarization, but I guess I, it's hard for me to picture what exactly a campaign 100 years ago looks like versus a campaign now. It, it was an old white man on the caboose of a train <laughs> driving through town giving their, their stump speeches. Um, I don't, Easier to sort of drain out the noise, I would think. And and I think as well the, the differences between the political parties were... Um, were minute enough that those of us today probably couldn't even tell the difference between the political dealings of Hayes and and Tilden. Okay, so at that point, election day happens, and they did they know the count? You said the night of they'd figured it out, that there was enough of a lead? the, The night of, there was enough of a lead that Hayes told reporters, I've lost the election. Um, I'm, I'm sure that was passed to him by telegraph. Mm-hmm. Um, but what started to come out was South Carolina, Florida, uh, Louisiana had disputed outcomes because of voter suppression. And newly franchised black men in the South were actually violently prevented from going to the polls. Um, if you also remember, and it's it's anecdotal because it's a book, but in The Jungle, the main character is paid to go vote a number of times by the, the union boss, and that's a story that was repeated over and over and over uh, way back then. But so these myths about, or myth, myths is the wrong word here, but these stories, these allegations of multiple votes and a lot of the stuff that we're hearing in the news right now was a reality. Absolutely. I mean, think about, I don't know how you would be able to travel quickly enough, but imagine you are in New York City and you vote and then you go to South Carolina and you vote. How on earth could those two states talk to each other fast enough to say, hey, that guy voted twice? Um, I, you know, I didn't come across any specific instances that I think would be really interesting to share, but the primary thing that I did see that happened was Southerners actively, violently trying to prevent newly franchised black men from voting. And the the thing is, the newly franchised black men back then were primarily Republicans. The Republican and Democratic parties back then are sort of unrecognizable to us today. But the South was heavily Democrat, and so they had a vested interest in preventing black men from voting, A, because they you know, had just gotten over being slaves and probably didn't necessarily think they deserved to be citizens, and B, because they were from the opposite political party. Yeah. Um, so the the vote counts from these three states are disputed. There's a fourth state, Oregon as well, that ha- didn't have the same instances of voter fraud and suppression, but they had an issue with the Electoral College, and that's really what this whole thing boils down to. But... Uh, just to give a quick constitutional lesson, we all, I think, know that you don't directly vote for the president. Yeah, I'd love a history of the Electoral College if you if you I have it. Didn't research that. <laughs> Come on. Um, the next time we we have an indirect system of representation, though. I don't vote specifically for Rutherford B. Hayes. My vote gets tabulated, and then an elector in the Electoral College casts a vote later on for Rutherford B. Hayes or Samuel Tilden. I hope I haven't offended any viewers by telling them I voted for Hayes. But um, I'll, I'll, I'll let you know what the emails <laughs> say. There's, there are requirements or, or uh, limitations on who can be electors in the Electoral College. And what happened in Oregon is it turned out that the elector was also the postmaster general. And there's a rule that says if you're an elector, you can't also hold a formal office like that. And so the the Oregon elector, who was also the postmaster general, was getting ready to resign. And the governor of the state removed him from the position 
and appointed a Republican elector, even though the person that resigned was a Democrat. So okay. it's shifting the there's already people who are shifting what will eventually become the outcome of the election. I'm talking with Matthew Worsner about election fraud and the stolen election of 1876. Follow Riverside Chats on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram and let us know what you think. We'll be back with more of the conversation after this break. Hello? Wanna be a munchie boy? Listen to Omaha's new goofy food podcast, The Munchie Boys! Every week, we get food from a different local restaurant. Let's go. We munch. Yes, there is munch. And talk about the experience. What we got. Where did we go? We're still there. Two boxes of food. In lighthearted banter. I just jammed the rest of the Mediterranean in my mouth. Meatball-based items. In a way that is both zany. This is going to be crazy. We might end up throwing up. And fun. My hands are burning. Hell yeah. Every episode features an exclusive song. Where we sing about our weekly adventures and feature a different analog synthesizer. It's a synth model. Play the track now. Now, yeah, we yeah, yeah. It sounds like haha, bro. Check out Munchie Boys on Spotify, YouTube, streaming or streaming, and most other digital outlets. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. And remember, you can always find our most recent 50 episodes of Riverside Chats wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe and leave us a review today, or become a patron over at patreon.com slash riversidechats to get access to the full backlog. Today I'm talking with Matthew Worstner, who's telling me the story of the stolen election in America in 1876 between Samuel Tilden and Rutherford B. Hayes. Here's the rest of the conversation. How organized was this plot, and who was behind it? You know... I I don't know about the le- level of organization because it strikes me as the kind of thing that was um, flying by the seat of their pants somewhat. Um, I, I didn't read anything or find anything that said that there was really any secret plots or secret dealings until after the votes were already cast and after they couldn't come to a decision on uh, whether the votes from South Carolina, Florida and Louisiana were legitimate or not. Um, but so once one thing happened, the wheels started to get set in motion in other places. Um, Oregon gets their new elector. The other three states from the South, they send two sets of votes from the Electoral College. And so they... How does that work? One set of... There, there were two sets of electors. I, I don't know how it worked. It was just another... <laughs> Another one of those things where um, the the rules only matter if they're enforced, I suppose. That that's the the takeaway that I think American history does not give you well enough when you're learning it, because you want to think that everything that there are consequences that you know the the what is the Martin Luther King quote that the arc of the universe bends toward justice and that it's all good ultimately and that there's just a few bad actors all over the place, but. Uh, I don't know. I guess it, I didn't realize until fairly recently how much of our system is based on people holding themselves accountable and then people around them holding each other accountable. You know, and that's a line that I, I like to use as a, a fun joke in my practice is it's only illegal if you get caught. And well, it seems like now you can get <laughs> caught and it still doesn't matter, right? I mean, it, a lot, and, in a lot of cases, if you're and, high up enough. And that, not not to be political, but that has sort of happened the last couple years that it doesn't really matter what the laws and the rules are. If you break the law and nobody's going to enforce it against you, uh, no harm, no foul, I guess. Yeah, well, it, it, that seems like a, another result of intense polarization, which is to say, look, so long as you're my party, I don't really care what you do. I'll still vote for you. Absolutely. And I I think that was, you know, obviously murder was illegal, but how many many black men and women were lynched and killed in the South back then? And the mob said, well, gosh, that's too bad. It's, It's a shame that happened, but nobody went to jail for it. And, you know, that, that kind of, um, way of thinking has sort of eroded, uh, my faith in democracy somewhat and I think was doing the same thing back then, that even if there are rules, people don't have to follow them. 
Right. So, okay. So, which two states sent the multiple sets of electors? Uh, South Carolina, Florida, Louisiana. Oh, three states. Okay. Yeah. So, so they send them, and I mean, I guess I don't have a good conception of what the Electoral College looks like when they meet. Is there somebody in charge of it who can say, like, no, 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 you guys are not supposed to be here. You're the correct ones. You know, I... I don't know the answer to that, and you're you're really <laughs> pointing out the fact that I, I am a business lawyer and I am not a constitutional <laughs> scholar, unfortunately. So how did they how did they solve this though? So there obviously there's a dispute about who's the president. Um, it it would be so easy to just say, "Gosh, Tilden won by two hundred and sixty thousand votes. Look like looks like he should be president," but that's not the system we have. So. Congress actually passed an act that set up a uh, committee to decide this. Oh, really? Congress didn't just pick their favorite and say, no, that's fraud. This person won. So that's actually what um, the House tried to do is they said, uh, or what Congress tried to do, the Democrats said, we have a majority in the House, so we get to decide. And um, I believe the president pro temp of the Senate at the time was a Republican, and so the Republicans said, no, he gets to decide. But there's no, there was no constitutional mandate that I was able to find that said, in the event of a tie, here's what's supposed to happen. Wait, okay, hold on. I, I know you've, you've probably explained this like six times, but I'm just going to ask because I need to clarify a couple of things here. So because of the multiple sets of electors, how did we get to a tie in the Electoral College? There, so there wasn't a tie. I, I was just saying that as a, uh, as a fun example. Okay. Um, based on the Electoral College... There were still 20 votes from those four states that hadn't really been formally decided yet. But nobody got to 270 with the formal ones that there, were ratified or were certified? Whatever the number was back then. Oh, yeah, I guess it would be. 180-something. Okay, yeah. um, nobody had reached that mark, and the 20 votes that came from those four states were enough that they theoretically could have put Hayes ahead, and so they didn't they didn't actually have a clear winner yet. So this was because, though, the states had not certified the election results and therefore, or they certified them two separate ways. I guess I don't get how you get to the point where you even send two different sets of electors. I I don't think I have a good answer for that, quite frankly, because that's such a ridiculously unprecedented (laughs) thing. Um, But I mean, so how were people reacting to this? Do you have a sense of like, was the country, uh, is it similar to when people talk about fraud now where everyone's like this, you know, the whole system's broken? You know, what I, what I discovered more and more was the majority of people in the country could not have cared less which person ended up as president. They just Hmm. wanted someone and they, they didn't want to deal with the fighting, um, because they were afraid that if they went too long without a president, Civil War, the sequel, starts. Interesting. But, I mean, a president started the Civil War. <laughs> sort of, I guess. Um, but a, a country totally and completely without a leader or with two people declaring themselves a leader uh, doesn't doesn't really do a good job separating us from other yeah. countries around the world. Right. Okay. Okay. So... To get back to the main thread then, so if there isn't a clear majority of electoral votes or you don't get to that magic number, whatever it was then, uh, then Congress is supposed to be able to appoint, or the House is supposed to be able to appoint whoever is president, right? Or they get to appoint the next president if the person doesn't win throughout the rules of the Electoral College. That that was the argument that was made by the Dems, was we control the House, so we're the ones that are supposed to be able to decide. But technically it's not supposed, like in that sense then... No matter who won any votes, if you just send too many electors and mess up the, the whole system and make it vague enough that it's not really clear who gets what, then... I mean, essentially, that would incentivize just make it a mess every four years, right? Because then whoever... In, in some ways, yes. If you control the House anyway. Right. And the, the Republicans argued that there was a different approach uh, that went through the Senate, but neither one of them appeared to have any basis in law or fact for... Um, why they were supposed to, one side was supposed to be right and one side was supposed to be wrong. Was there no way to figure out who actually won these states and to appoint the correct electors? Apparently not. Um, (laughs) You know, but that that gets down to the question of how do you determine whether or not a certain vote is fraudulent. And that's exactly what the commission that was appointed was supposed to do, was to determine which votes were legitimate 
And based on those votes, that will determine who wins whichever state. How corrupt was that? Well, um, there were 15 people appointed to the commission, five uh, members of the House, five members of the Senate, and five members of the Supreme Court that somehow magically uh, aligned 8-7 in the Republican favor. Oh, boy. So um, I, I don't know if that was a conspiracy, but there's a lot of circumstantial evidence. <laughs> it's one of those, you know, my dad always says this about the Supreme Court, which is that he, he doesn't believe that the law should be uh, partisan enough that you often, that most of the votes are so close. And this seems like also something where there should be a clear enough answer that it's weird that it's a close vote or down to one or two, you know? And one of the one of the hallmarks of the 1960s Civil Rights Act cases was the chief judge and the other justices at the time recognized the importance of the gravity of these cases, and many of them were decided 9 to 0 with the court sending a very clear message, this is important, civil rights is important, this is the way that we're supposed to decide things. But the decisions that come down 5-4 or come down with a plurality are, appear to have the stain of partisanship on them. Right, yeah. I mean, I, I get that there are some that will have more wiggle room than others, but it, it does seem bad when that's the, that's the norm. Yeah, and, and you know... I, I think I brought this up before that judges are not supposed to be biased, but you know, you're allowed to vote as a judge. You're allowed to have opinions. You're allowed to have political leanings. And in some ways a five, four vote is just one of the things that we have to accept with the system. You know, every 30 years it, it may flip the other way. And that's just something that we have to deal with. But it, it erodes trust. I think it would be the main argument against actually making the judicial system partisan, right? Because like Congress is going to be partisan. You have parties. That's part of the, the whole deal, the, right? The, Presidents, yeah, and whatever. But like the it's from the Latin term party. Yeah, I yeah. mean, so the but the judicial system in theory is supposed to be independent of that. And yeah, it seems like we're all happy. Like no, 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 that's my judge. My judge who does this does that. You know, and your judge is bad and stupid or whatever. In theory. Uh, all men are created equal and everybody was supposed to have the right to vote in 1776 yeah, and well, 1790. To bring Ameri it full circle, that didn't America's been, been good either. at theory, but we haven't been good at practice. <laughs> so this this group comes down with their 8-7 decision, which is what? Um, that Hayes is going to win the election. Even though he lost the popular vote. Yes. But in the meantime, what had been happening was backdoor dealings in a Washington hotel, interestingly owned by a very successful black man in Washington, um, between the parties where it was agreed in secret, and it's it's somewhat disputed, but uh, it's what happened, so I'm, I'm guessing that it was an actual agreement. Um, the agreement was that if Hayes wins, troops are going to be removed from the South. And shortly thereafter, there's an 8-7 vote that Hayes wins, and shortly after the inauguration, troops are removed from the South. The practical effect of that is somewhat unfortunate. And to come even more full circle, it ties back to my thoughts on court packing and how it's a, a short-sighted bad approach. In 1877, they decided, okay, if, if we let your boy be president, we'll remove our troops from the South. And because the troops were removed from the South, Jim Crow laws were allowed to flourish. And black people were, in essence, subjugated in many of the same ways that they had been for years and years prior. Uh, also that Republican Rutherford B. Hayes, nobody's favorite president, could become president. So what do you know then about that meeting? It was between, was it members of Congress, like the, the chief members of each party in Congress? Right. Okay. And so why was it a good deal to the Republicans to get a president for four years, but to essentially lose the South? Um, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily know the specific details, but I, it harkens back in some ways to the belief that they wanted to get someone because they were afraid that the second civil war was going to restart and the country was already in a severe economic depression and didn't have the resources or the ability to fight another war. So the, the Republicans wanted to have somebody in power so that they can have their person in power 
And the Democrats wanted to get it over and done with so that they could get rid of Reconstruction. But like if you're thinking long-term effect and if you're, I guess it depends on if you're, if you care about party power or if you're thinking about the people that you just fought a civil war to help, which is to say, I would think Reconstruction still being in effect would have a much larger impact long-term than whoever is president for the next four years and your guy lost, right? Probably. And that, that short-sightedness um, actually probably did more harm than good for the country at large than it just did for um, newly enfranchised and newly freed slaves. Um, think about all of the time, effort, and energy that was spent on voter suppression and spent on segregation. That's That's money that wasn't in manpower that weren't put into other things. Think about the the number of black scientists or mathematicians or people that could have cured so many dif- different diseases that had to live in this post-Reconstruction South uh, all the way up until the Civil Rights era. Um, and think about all of the wasted time and effort that the the white people back then spent preventing these people. Um, it's an externality, but it's really a relevant thing in my mind. And so, I mean, but this did this set a precedent then because Congress decides ultimately in this case, it sounds like that we don't really care how the people voted, right? I mean, we're not going to worry too much about the results here. I, I think we don't care about the way people voted is going to go on the tombstones of most congressmen. <laughs> yeah, but that's depressing, right? I mean, it, I guess it is. The, well, I guess it goes back to what I was talking about at the very beginning uh, of America, right? So 100 years ago, they're like, well, we care enough that some people should vote. And philosophically, maybe all people should vote, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. But then even 100 years after that, uh, the, the people in power don't care that much about the vote, which was kind of the whole idea of America in the beginning. Everybody wants you to vote as long as you're voting for their boy. Well, even, it sounds like even this, though, it doesn't matter. I mean, they did vote for their boy, uh, and then they were like, well, but we'll, we'll make a, a bigger political bargain here it, instead. It, it's another example, I think, of, of making the system work for them in ways that it wasn't intended. And that's, that's kind of a central theme in my mind to the Constitution at large, that in 1776 and in 1790, what they envisioned is not what we've ended up with today. And um, politicians and judges have been able to craft what they've been given um, to work in ways that nobody expected. And I, I think that has ha- that happened in 1876. It, it happened in 2000. It, it's happening nowadays. Um, and it's just an unfortunate byproduct of the, the system that w- we were born into. <laughs> This makes it seem very unsolvable. Uh, you know, the the Constitution, it is what it is. It's what we have. We're, we're not going to get a new one. And so we have to make do with what we have. It For all of the imperfections that it has, the Constitution also affords us, the citizens, so many broad-ranging and far-reaching rights that people all over the world don't have. So for all of the imperfections, it still does a marvelous and wonderful job allowing us to be um, citizens of this country in ways that other people can't even dream of. Do you think that the uh, us versus them mentality that seems to exist and has existed for a long time between your congressional, uh, uh, the people who, who are elected to Congress and the citizens, I mean, it seems like it also sets up a status quo as something that's unquestionable for the most part. And so there's uh, a push in every sort of society uh, when the status quo benefits you not to question the status quo. But I think sometimes, uh, especially this story here where Congress is sort of undermining an election in 1876, which is to say, uh, if I think to, I mean, I think about like essentially why have Congress the way it is if it can get away with something like that? And something I, I, it took me a long time to question basic things about American society. Like, you know, like why do we have an electoral college is a big question right now. I sometimes agree with the question, like right. why do we have a house and a Senate other than 
It's a lot of people. It's a lot of tax dollars just to support the, the HVAC bill in that building. Well, and it's just, it is two of the same thing. Just one is more, one's more disproportionate than the other. And that's the argument for it. Right. And, you know, it seems like at a certain point, I mean, do you think people should be more open open about questioning the system and making broad institutional change? I, th- I think, yes, we should be open to questioning it. And I think that we, in some ways, as citizens have an obligation to, to question authority because that's what checks and balances are. We're not supposed to just accept things the way they are. And I am the first to tell you that I don't have the solution. So I'm, I'm happy to complain until I'm blue in the face about the flaws with it. But until somebody can come up with something better, this is what we've got. And I'm okay living with it because I, I don't have a better idea. Well, let's, as we wrap up here, do a quick comparison. So uh, we're living through the endless 2020 election. And uh, there you are- You call it endless though. There, the president wasn't decided until March of 1877. In many ways, we knew who the president was in, in 2020, the day after the election. That's It's almost, yeah, it, it ends every few days repeatedly right. this, this time. But there's a lot of similar uh, sorts of allegations going around, whereas you sort of established that in, seven, in 1876, a lot of these things happened, right? There was, there was certainly fraud. There was corruption. Right. There was ambiguity in how the outcome was decided. Uh, how would you compare that with 2020? Um, I, I would say the election of 2020 was remarkably tame in comparison to the election of 1876. I don't know that I heard a single news story of like mobs that were preventing people from voting. I did hear, um, or here, I read a couple of stories. Of, yeah, it sounds like you're you're out talking to all the. Yeah, okay, anyway, I'm, I'm out on the streets, <laughs> getting information like a newsie. Um, I did read a few stories, but not many of armed, exclusively white men um, outside of polling places who were there to make sure that uh, there were no problems on election day. That's absolutely voter intimidation and in many ways it's voter suppression although even that message seems confused because uh you hear a lot of the same groups of people saying you know stop the count and count the votes and it gets i'm not really sure what a lot of people are actually arguing for about the election at this point you know i i voted for rutherford b hayes in this election (laughs) and so i i don't really have a, a dog in the fight but in many ways, I empathize with the viewpoint of the majority of people in 1876 that I'm at the point where I just want to know. I want the finality. I, you know, I care who is the president because I care who the who is the president. But I don't care so much that we don't have anybody until March. I, I'm not willing to wait that long. I'm not willing to um, leave it up to fate or to chance. And I, I can't imagine the stress of not knowing who's going to be president for that long period of time. And imagine how stressful that that is for poor Rutherford B. Hayes' wife, who keeps having to hear about, gosh, honey, I don't know whether or not I won the election. Do you think he was whiny about it a lot? Oh, probably. Everybody named Rutherford is rather whiny, I've heard. Oh, boy. Um, sorry, all my Rutherford <laughs> fans. But, okay, so... I, the idea that you're mad that there isn't a figurehead does seem to correlate to 2020 as well, where we have Congress that, because we have one party controlling one house and one party controlling the other, and because um, Mitch McConnell does not bring things up for a vote pretty much ever unless he knows he has enough of the Republican votes to pass it, we don't really have conversation. We don't have really... Uh, much of a presence of Congress, especially in a time when like there's a pandemic and people would like relief. And so we have these stalemates that I would argue function as an absent Congress. So in the same way you're saying like, it'd be bad to not have a functional president or not have a president at all. It sort of feels like we don't really have that much of a government doing things right now, other than maybe the courts. You know, what's, what's interesting though, is I don't believe the president has any obligation to do anything. And I don't believe Congress has any obligation to pass any laws. It's absolutely an an abdication of the authority that we've given them. And I I think is a pretty sad representation of our government. But if Mitch McConnell said, you know what, guys, this, this cycle, I really don't feel like doing any laws. 
I think he's within his rights to do that. Yeah, and uh, I don't. I'm not saying that that's a good thing. <laughs> sure, don't sure. Don't get me. Yeah. I, I saw a story um, earlier today about how a bipartisan group of legislatures legislators had proposed a new stimulus package, and Mitch McConnell said, no, "No thanks." And you know that's been the story of the last couple months, and it's both the Republicans and the Democrats' fault, according to the other apparently, but. At the end of the day, they don't have any obligation to us to do anything, and you know I don't I don't know what my point is by bringing that up. I guess, but <laughs> in in some ways it, it's rather unfortunate because there's no mandate that says that they have to do what's best for the people. The mandate exists because we each have a vote, and if we don't think that Mitch McConnell is is doing. Um, the will of the people, we can just not vote for him. If we live in Kentucky. Yeah. If I cared that much, I could move to Kentucky and vote against him. But at the end of the day, there's, there's nothing requiring them to do anything. Well, the, the way I'm connecting all of this is it seems like it's, it's as old, it's American, as American as apple pie to have uh, questions about whether you should trust the government is looking out for you but then also it's trying to juggle that with the whole idea of America, which is that you should have faith in it because you have control in it. But then it keeps slapping you in the face when you try. And I don't know where it all lands. The, the theory of the government is that it's supposed to do good for you. But in practice, that doesn't always happen. That's a good place for us to end. Wow. Thanks for being on the show again. Thank you for allowing me to be the first ever repeat guest. Riverside Chats is produced in conjunction with KIOS and Exarbon Creative. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos, and our artwork is done by Ben Matukowicz. You can find the backlog wherever you get podcasts. Stay tuned next week for another conversation. Thank you for listening. I'm Tom Noblock.